Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for the fellowship that we enjoy. Lord, that good rapport with one another, that the sharing of faith and encouragement and care in life. Father, we ask your blessing on this time of learning. Lord, that as we open your word, you'd, you'd show us yourself there. You'd speak to us. You, you would um, remind us of what it is that you are doing in the midst of this world. Father, that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe, that these times indeed are fully in your hand. Lord, we long for your Son, our Savior, Lord, and put his return all the more on our hearts this morning. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I um, heard from Gabe just a couple of days ago that he wasn't going to be here and thought, well, what do we do? I understand you just finished Daniel, right? Yes. So we could have a test. <laughs> we could have a pop quiz on Daniel. But... Uh, <laughs> Not that. I don't want to be so discouraged just before going in to preach. So. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but uh, actually, I don't know, you know what uh, Dave said and didn't say, and, and uh, I didn't want to have to cram study all of Daniel myself. <laughs> so we didn't do that. What I thought would be a good thing to do, especially uh, uh, you finish Daniel, which has very practical but also prophetic, clear prophetic implications of a panorama of, of, of eschatology or end times there. You also, we've been going through Route 66 for over a year now, and we're wrapping up the Old Testament, and we've come into some intriguing parts of the Old Testament. We've gone through the exile, a lot of prophecy, and uh, there's some inter interesting things. For instance, in the book of Zechariah, at the end of Zechariah, there's a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles, that all of the world is going to come up to Jerusalem, not just Israelites, but all of the world is going to come up to Jerusalem, there where God's King and Messiah will be enthroned, and they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Why the Feast of Tabernacles, I wonder? Why not Pentecost? Why not Passover? Passover is a pretty big holiday, isn't it? Passover is the, the first the first of the year. Why not Passover? Why the Feast of Tabernacles? And in the book of Ezra, we'll, we'll see this morning, or perhaps as you've been reading ahead, in the book of Ezra, the people return to the land, and it's the seventh month. They have returned to the land, and Ezra is giving us some back history. The first six chapters are really history, most of it before Ezra's time. He's given us the backstory. And as he does that, um, he describes in chapter 3 that the first returnees, 50,000 of them, they get back to Jerusalem and they celebrate. It's the seventh month. Well, there's three feasts in the seventh month. And they specifically celebrate tabernacles. But they don't celebrate the Day of Atonement. And why is that? That's the highest holy day of the year for Israel. And they don't celebrate Day of Atonement. Does anybody know why? There's a very good reason why they cannot celebrate the Day of Atonement. Does anybody know? No? Nobody? They don't believe that they're, uh, they don't believe in Jesus? Well, many Jewish people don't believe in Jesus celebrate the Day of Atonement. It's a Jewish holiday. Old Testament. All the way back in the book of Leviticus. And, uh, but, but they do not, and there's a good reason why, and we're going to find out today. Okay? What I want to do is I want to go over... From Leviticus chapter 23, the seven feasts of Israel. People have called this God's calendar. It's God's calendar. It's God's yearly calendar for Israel, certainly. These are the festivals, and three of them 
uh, scattered through the year are the three times that all of the Israelite men should gather again to Jerusalem. So there's the big uh, pilgrimage in Islam where, where everybody goes to Mecca once a year. Well, actually, they don't do it once a year. Most people might do it once in a lifetime. It's a big deal. And for many Jews scattered and dispersed all, all, all across the empire, that would be the case as well. They wouldn't return three times a year uh, after, after Jerusalem was reestablished. But to even return once in a lifetime was a big deal. So these feasts of return, and, and when Israel's new in the land and the feasts are established, for everybody to continually gather three times a year at God's temple in Jerusalem, that was important to keep God's people in worship. Yeah? That's why they didn't celebrate, because there was no temple. Oh, you're right. How do you celebrate the Day of Atonement without a temple? They're sent there. We just jumped back to Haggai and uh, my question earlier, why they didn't celebrate Atonement. And Sue just got it. There's no, there's, no there's no temple. And to celebrate the Day of Atonement, you had to have the temple, or at least the tabernacle. Because you had to go into the holy place with the blood. That was the one day a year when the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat for the sins of the nation. And there's no temple. That's why they're there. To go to the temple. Very good. All right. Okay, so we're going to look at this calendar. But in this calendar, you're going to see more than just an annual calendar. There are some prophetic foreshadowings of big events that would occur along the way that Leviticus chapter 23 points to. And that will be why the answer to my other question about in the book of Zechariah chapter 14, why they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And when that's mentioned, here and again in scripture, what does it mean? What is it about? Okay, so Leviticus chapter 23. And uh, hopefully you, you, you have one of these sheets that there, there are two pages. Page 1, page 2, although they're not numbered, but the Feast of Israel is page 1. And basically, it's a chart that lists each of the seven feasts. So I want to go through Leviticus chapter 23, which, I, which uh, describes each of these feasts. Now, some of them are described in more detail other places. We'll touch on that when we get there. But this is the one chapter that describes all of them together and gives you that panorama, which is important. All right, Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as a holy convocation. They are my appointed feasts. Six days work shall be done. On the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. The Sabbath is reminded there because among these feasts, there are also Sabbath. And these feast days, many of them are considered to be a special Sabbath or a high Sabbath. I'm reminded of every Sabbath. So God's plan of Sabbath is woven through this, this calendar. Verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The seventh day, well, we just moved from Passover that quick. <sighs> I feel cheated, don't you? Well, if you feel cheated, you can go back to Exodus chapter 12 where you will find instructions for, for Passover given in detail. But notice, the first month is Passover. God sets his calendar, not in January, like you and I do, but God starts his calendar 
in Passover. This year, the first month of the year would be April, because Passover occurs in April this year. So if we were on that calendar, that's that, it, that's the first thing. Now, why would pa Passover be the first the first month? Why would the first month be the month of Passover? Any ideas? The, um, the, uh, the original Passover, the, the angel of death took the firstborn. Okay. So they were in Egypt. Right. And somebody over here said new era. A new era. What do you mean? Came out of Egypt. Uh, just a new, uh, like a new beginning. Okay, a new beginning. That's exactly out of death into new life. Out of bondage into into God's liberty, in, toward toward God's promise. So so new new life was given at Passover. So the nation is delivered. The nation is rescued. The nation is taken out of bondage into new life. It all begins at Passover. All begins at Passover when the blood of the Lamb, that Lamb that for three days is watched, for three days is watched, and then on the on the fourteenth day of the month, it is it is it is killed between the evenings. And I think is that in here? Does it describe Passover a little more? It doesn't here. Oh yeah, here it is. In the first on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, or in Hebrew. Between the evenings. That's interesting, between the evenings. There were, in a sense, two evenings. There was evening when the sun went down, that was the first evening. And then when it was actually dark, dark, that was also the second evening. So between the evenings, or at twilight, which is that time between sundown and when it's dark, dark, or clearly night. That's between the evenings. But isn't it interesting, when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens? It turns to night. Uh, that's right, that's right. It goes dark, and there's an evening, and then it gets light again, and then there's another evening. That's an interesting aside. We know the fulfillment of the Passover is in Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul says very explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5, and I'll, I'll rattle off a lot of verses. That's one of the reasons I gave you the handout. Because uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse, verse 7, that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Christ, our Paschal Lamb, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So then, 1 Peter 1.18 picks it up. You know that you were redeemed or ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold. They took out silver or gold from Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians when they went out, but they were not ransomed by silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And that lamb that was proven to be without blemish by being watched for three days before it was killed. Yeah. You say watched. 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 Observed. It was carefully watched. Observed. Yeah. Yeah. They kept it with them and watched it very, very closely. Probably some some of the kids had some attachment to this this year old lamb that was killed. Part of the family. Now we're going to kill it. That's right. That's right. That's right. It becomes very personal. What would make it unclean? I mean, how come they had to watch it? Well, any, any faults that it, maybe it has a limb that they didn't see at first. It's a bit lame or crippled. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no spot or any fault or blemish with it. It's a perfect. Well, now, why did the lamb need to be perfect? To symbolize the God just really choosy about his sacrifices? Yeah. It's signifying something else, isn't it? What is, that Christ is sinless. That Christ is as a lamb, unblemished, without spot. That he had no sin of his own. 
He dies for us. Okay, Christ, our Passover, the beginning. There's the crucifixion, okay? And Passover is, is, is linked to this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread comes right in the next verse there, verse 6. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the 14th is the Passover. The 15th, the very next day, starts the, the, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you will eat unleavened bread. The first day you'll have a holy convocation. You will not do any ordinary work, any vocational work. It's a holiday. Doesn't mean you can't do any, any work. There's only one feast day which you can't do any, any work at all. You can't go work on the car. You can't go mow the lawn. You can't clean the kitchen. You can't do any work on this one day. But, but this is not that kind of day. This is just, it's, it's like President's Day. It's a day off from regular vocational work. Okay? Any ordinary work. You shall present a fruit offering to the Lord for seven days. On seven days, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So you have this unleavened bread. What's going on with unleavened bread? When they, when they left out of Egypt, they are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are set free. And they, and they, and they go out of Egypt, and they go out in a hurry. They, in fact, they eat that Passover standing on their feet. They don't sit down or recline at the table. They eat with their staff in their hand and their bundle on their back. And they eat standing up because they're eating in expectancy, in confidence that God is going to deliver them and call them out that night. And so they don't have time to leaven the bread. The bread doesn't have time to rise. There's no leaven in the bread. You're not going to set it out and, and let it rise. Don't make that kind of bread. This is going to be unleavened bread. But there's something more to that. That leaven, uh, uh, Paul picks it up when he, in fact, the reason he points out Christ is our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we are to, a Jewish person when they celebrate the um, Feast of Unleavened Bread, they go through the house very, very, very carefully. In fact, the children search the house for leaven, right? And mom actually is supposed to hide some leaven in the house somewhere, right? For them to find. So they can be successful and find the leaven so they know that they've purged it out. So they get all the leaven out of the house. They search it out. Because there's only leaven in the house is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Paul is saying, so also, you live a, live a new life. Live a life new that's out of Egypt. Live a life that's unleavened. A new life. And that new life is, is, is linked to Passover. We have no new life except for Passover. We have no new life except for Passover. So the new life that we have in Christ is seen in the unleavened bread. Christ, God made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him to live an unleavened life. Also tied to Passover. So you have three feast days all together is the feast of first fruits. Actually, I'm going to call this the first first fruits. Verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will wave it, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, while you roll that blemish as a burnt offering, and the grain offering with its two tenths. And on it goes, it gives various of the, of the requirements of the sacrifice. But what's, what's not clear here in Leviticus 23 is that the Feast of First Fruits was right in the middle of these other two. 
in the midst of Passover, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the Sunday after Passover, the Sunday after the Sabbath, after Passover, was always the Feast of First Fruits. Okay? Sunday, not Sabbath. The Sunday is the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not Sunday. Sorry, the Seventh-day Adventists have that right. The Sabbath is Saturday. It is the seventh day, not the first day. Christians, though, since the very first century, have met on the first day and not the Sabbath because it's the Lord's Day. Why is it the Lord's Day? What's special about Sunday? He rose. It's the first day of the week. Not unlike the first month when everything starts new. God does this new thing. And new life begins, and we're, 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 every Sunday is Easter, folks. Well, actually, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. And, and that, that Christ is the first fruit. So what does 1 Corinthians 15 say? 1 Corinthians 15, 20. You don't have to guess. I put it in your notes. Right there. And I knew we had a lot of ground to cover and not much time to get there, so I, I put the verses in line here. Actually, I found a chart that had the verses in line. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, what difference does it make? If, is there a resurrection or not? Does it matter? Does it make any difference? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is arguing it makes all the difference. If there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. If there is no resurrection, then, then you are still in your sins. But he says, Christ is risen from the dead. And Christ, being risen from the dead, has become the first fruits in resurrection. We should turn to that passage. I think the abbreviated verses there don't quite, don't quite fill it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. So now and again, one of my pet peeves, and you know, pastors end up with several. We just have all kinds of little, little, little things that just tweak us. So I, I shouldn't tell you this because sometimes, if you're clever, sometime two or three weeks from now, you'll say this innocently and cleverly just to provoke me. But I'll tell you anyway. Okay. Give you something to look forward to. Have you ever heard it said, really, the Christian life is so good. What my experience as a Christian, you should be a Christian, and even if you were to find out at the end of your life that it wasn't really true, the life that you lived would have been better anyway. It's worth it to be a Christian even if the thing really is not true. Because just having that worldview makes your life better. Have you heard that? You haven't heard that? Yeah. <laughs> Some of you have heard that. Sure, you've heard that. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of nonsense built on a, 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 a weak and beggarly and, dare I say, worldly view of the Christian life. That God's intention is to give me a happy, blessed, comfortable, and trouble-free life here. And it is not. You have a hard time convincing the Apostle Paul of that. Read 2 Corinthians 4 again. You just don't find that in Paul's resume. He says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if in this life is the only place the difference is made, then we are of all men, what? Of all people, most to be pitied. 
Oh, you poor people. Oh, you miserable wretches. Why? Because you are throwing your lives away for nothing. We don't say it that way because maybe we're not throwing our lives away. Maybe we're keeping them. And we're happy and we're comfortable and we're blessed and isn't it wonderful? But we've been called to give our lives away like he gave his life away. That's the fullness of the experience of the life of Christ. A call to sacrifice. But in fact, verse 20, yeah, that's not the case. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What were first fruits? The first fruits were the confident assurance of an abundant harvest to follow. We will take this first bundle of what's come out of the field and we're hungry. But we're not going to eat anything yet. We're not going to eat any of that new harvest. We're still eating out of the pantry from last year. We're not eating any of this new harvest until this first bundle has been taken and devoted back to the Lord. Given back to the Lord. The first fruits, confident we are going to take the first of what we have and give that to the Lord. Confident that the Lord is still going to bring an abundant harvest that's going to take care of us. That's first fruits in agricultural culture. It is the confident expectation of an abundant harvest to follow. This bundle of grain we're bringing in is not all that's going to be. What does that mean in, in the resurrection of Christ? What is Paul saying about Jesus being the first fruits of those raised from the dead? That there's more fruit to come. There's more. There's more resurrection to come. That, that um, well, he, he unpacks it here. As by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also all who are in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So he's the firstfruits, the guarantee of our future, future resurrection. So if Jesus isn't risen, we have no resurrection. That's one of, that's one of base reasons why the resurrection is so important and so critical. We have no resurrection if Christ is not raised. And we will only have hope in this life only. We ought to be most miserable. Pity. It's too bad. It's a shame, really. But it's not that way at all. Christ is risen, so we... So, so there's first fruits. Okay, so the resurrection of Christ. You have Passover. You have Christ's resurrection on that, on that Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, following Passover. Does that sound familiar? Wow, check your calendar this year. Passover occurs just before Easter. So cool. But there's Passover, and then there's that resurrection, that celebration of Christ's resurrection. He is the first fruits of our resurrection, and so we enter into the feast of unleavened bread. All of that is wrapped up in Christ for us, the Christian life. Those three feasts, they all roll together. It's one big party. So sometimes in your Bible you will read about Passover. Sometimes they'll talk about the Feast of First Fruits. And yet it sounds like Passover, it's all together. It's all rolled together in one, in one big, one big eight-day celebration, okay? So Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. In the middle of that, you're going to have the Feast of First Fruits. Celebrating or marking out the resurrection. So Half the calendar is rolled up in one week. It's a big week, isn't it? It's a big week. And then, well, we take some time off. Then we have harvesting to do, by the way. This is an agricultural culture, or economy, rather. So there's work to be done. There is barley and wheat to harvest. And so all that harvesting begins 
for how many days before the next feast? Anybody know? How many? 50 days. 50 days, because the next feast is called? Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks. It's called the Feast of Weeks because it's, you count 49 days. Seven Sabbaths, and the day after the seventh Sabbath, or a week of weeks. Isn't that clever? A week of weeks, so they call it the Feast of Weeks. But it starts the very next day, on a Sunday, after the, the seventh Sabbath, following these, these other feasts. So 50 days later, the day of Pentecost. And so it's called Pentecost in the Greek. Pentecost means 50. There you go. That was pretty easy. So on the day of Pentecost, something big happened, didn't it? We know about Pentecost not because it's a Jewish feast. We know about Pentecost because of Acts chapter 2. But what is the day of Pentecost? What's supposed to happen there? Let's get back to Leviticus 23. The Feast of Weeks. You count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. I'm, in, I'm back in Leviticus 23, verse 15. You count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you will present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You will bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved. One of two tenths an ephah. Or, or, sorry, uh, two loaves to be weighed, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. Oh, these ones are baked with leaven. So there's some continuity here. There's a, these are not unleavened like the other unleavened bread of Passover. These these are two. These are these have leaven in them. As first fruits to the Lord. So this is a, this is another first fruits. You confused? You had barley harvest and first fruits of the barley harvest, and following barley harvest, you had the wheat harvest. So there's a second first fruit. So these these loaves are also said to be first fruits to the Lord. Now keep that in mind just for a moment. First fruits always promise what? More to come. More to come. Something more to follow. Something greater to come. Okay. First fruits to the Lord. You shall pray. Present with the bread seven lambs without blemish, one bowl, two rams, burnt offering to the Lord, their grain offerings. You shall offer one male goat for a sin offering. and So there's various offerings, but the bread was called a wave offering. What is that? They used to do something like that in the kingdom, didn't they? Yeah. Anybody remember that? <laughs> the wave offering in the kingdom where they'd all go like this, and they'd go like that, and they'd just kind of circle around the stadium. Yes. Yes. Oh. Afraid I'm showing my age, but not for this group. Come on, you guys remember that. <laughs> so, well, it's not like that. It's not that kind of wave offering. It's not that people were dancing around, waving their loaves of bread. Well, maybe they were. I don't know. But a wave offering is an offering where it's presented, but it is not consumed. Okay, these loaves of bread were not burned up unless you forgot the timer for the oven. These breads were not burned up on the altar. This bread was just waved, presented before the Lord, and yet retained. Okay? Now, what, you have two loaves of bread, not one. These loaves of bread come with, come with a leaven in them. There, there are associated with them, and associated with the celebration of the feast, burnt offerings and sin offerings, but not of the bread itself. What does Passover represent? What happened on Passover that you're familiar with? What happened on Passover? 
Oh, sorry. I, mean, I said Passover. That's why you can. That's why you're not. I'm sorry. Yes, that happened on Passover. I'm thinking Pentecost. Yeah, I backtracked. You're saying like, what's going on? What happened on Pentecost that you're aware of? The big deal. When you think of Pentecost, what do you think of? Acts chapter two. The church begins. What's unique about the church? Okay, the Holy Spirit indwelling. All right, the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost. What else is unique about the church? That's different from Israel. There's Jew and Gentile together. The church on Pentecost was still very, very Jewish. I suppose there probably weren't any Gentiles still. But they would come very, very quickly. Peter was a little confused at first. Remember, he goes to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, and there's a lot of confusion there, but Gentiles were freely welcomed in. And that was made very obvious by the Spirit. And so there are Jew and Gentile together. A lot of people take these two loaves, these two leavened loaves, and they see either there's Jewish people and there's Gentile people, the two. And Ephesians makes very clear, clear use of that language. The two are made into one. The two are joined together in one. So there's something new. Interesting about Pentecost, Pentecost is also, in, in, in rabbinical tradition, Pentecost is a feast that celebrates the giving of the law. That the law was given supposedly on the same day that God marked out later as Pentecost. And when, and when the law was given, there was this great rushing sound like a trumpet blast. And Hebrews describes it. And the mountain was filled with fire and smoke. And, and the rabbinic tradition, and the rabbis tended to color things up a little bit. So don't really know if this, how accurate this is, but the rabbinic tradition also talked about flames of fire from the mountain, from God's glory, coming and landing on each of the, each of the 70 elders of Israel, showing that, that God's spirit was there, that he was, he was marking out these 70 as the elders of Israel who were responsible to make sure that the people kept his law. So the establishment of the covenant, there was a lot of Pentecost, and certainly there was that loud blast, that loud sound, and there was, the, there was the evident appearance of the glory of God in a fiery manner. That certainly happened at the giving of the law at Sinai, the Old Covenant. Now, Pentecost, when God begins the church, there is something else going on. There's the establishment of a new covenant. I thought this was interesting in relation to the law. If, if the law was given at Pentecost, or just that the rabbis had connected it that way, and some of the aspects of the law, and bring that into what you're familiar with about the day of Pentecost. When there's this great sound, like a rushing wind, like a, like a cyclone, like a hurricane, there's this great sound that just raises and fills, and then there's, this, there's these tongues of, as of fire. There's this evident Shekinah glory that's coming down upon people as the, as the Spirit now is actually visibly, obviously coming and indwelling these people. And they begin to speak in various languages so that the people who had gathered from Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem, from all of these places... Let's go to Acts chapter 2. I'm, I'm describing a lot that maybe you're not familiar with. We haven't gotten to Acts yet on uh, Route 66. Some versions... In Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 say that when the day of Pentecost had fully come. I love that translation. Because it just suggests this is a different 
Pentecost. This is a fuller Pentecost. The ESV is a little tame here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, exiles returned, who knew the languages from all of these lands that they had come from. Now were they dwelling now back in Jerusalem permanently, or were they back because this is Pentecost? I don't know. Pentecost was one of those three feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and then the Day of Atonement, when everybody, well actually tabernacles, when everybody must regather again. Regather back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And so they all hear them, and it begins, to, and then it goes to, and it lists all of these languages. So whatever else you, you, you believe tongues to be later in the scripture. Here, tongues were languages that these people understood from all of these regions. They were known earthly languages, and God was proclaiming in Gentile tongues, in the languages of these various nations, God was proclaiming his glory. And Peter says, hey, this is not unusual. This is this 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 looks like what God said He was going to do in the last days. This looks like what God said in the prophet Joel. He begins to quote the prophet Joel. God had said He was going to do that. He was going to pour out His Spirit. Oh, this is exciting. This is wrapping up. This is, the end is coming here. That's what Peter's thinking at this point. So there's Pentecost, the beginning of the church. If we if we follow a timeline of what God is doing, there's the crucifixion, there's the resurrection, there's the church. There is new life in Christ. We live in. We're to live in un unleavened lives in the midst of this age. Now, now Pentecost is coming, and that unleavened, that's, that's true for God's people Israel. That's true for the church. The people of Israel were to live unleavened lives as the redeemed of God, as those who have been ransomed by the Passover lamb. They were to live new lives. They were to live lives according to God's law, unique from the world. They're going to run into problems in the book of Ezra this morning, you'll see, because they did not live differently. They were not living uniquely as they were supposed to. They were not living unleavened lives. Okay? So, um, then you arrive at Pentecost, and, and, and there's this, what I would suggest is, a, is, a, is, a, is an outpouring of the new covenant. There's a new covenant established. The church is born. The two loaves, the Jew and Gentile, now together in one new man. As Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, the middle wall dividing Jew and Gentile from the temple has been abolished. All right? And that middle wall was a requirement of law. So the new covenant comes and the law has been done away. Interesting. And so in that calendar, now the church comes into existence, the birth of the church, and we have arrived at summer. It's a time of labor in the fields, preparation for the final harvest. I love the inclusion there of John 4.35 when Jesus tells his disciples, look unto the fields, for the fields are already white for harvest. And then we come to the Fall feasts. And the fall feasts, again, come in rapid succession. If uh, I didn't have, I don't have the headings on the second page, so if you wanted, that's why I didn't print it front to back. You can line up the two pages like this, and then you can, you'll have the heading to the second page if you, if you want. Maybe you can just follow the columns and it's no problem at all. Now, I told you that the year began with which feast? 
Passover. Passover is the beginning. Passover is the beginning of new life in Christ that God has given us. But in the Jewish calendar, the, the, the new year also begins with trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is the new year, it's the civil new year. So you have two New Year celebrations in Israel every year. You have the religious new year, which is at Passover, or the month of Passover, and then you have the civil new year, kind of like our fiscal year, maybe would be some sort of comparison. But the civil new year begins with Rosh Hashanah. So you have the new year um, occurring in the Feast of Trumpets, which is in the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month. Better get back to Leviticus 23. How are we doing on time? Oh, we're okay. Okay, so we did the Feast of Weeks, we're up to the Feast of Trumpets. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, vocational work. Another day off, yay! And you shall present a fruit offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke. Okay, so there's the Feast of Trumpets. Not a lot said about trumpets. And trumpets isn't spoken of a whole lot in terms of the Feast of Trumpets was celebrated. <coughs> it's supposed to be a solemn memorial. And it's calling the people together to remember and to get ready for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is going to come on the 10th of the month. And it is the High Holy Day of Israel. It is the most solemn assembly. So keep trumpets as a second New Year, a civil New Year celebration. Just hang that here for a moment, and let's move on to atonement, and maybe even booze, and we'll come back to trumpets then, okay? The Day of Atonement, verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. You shall afflict yourselves. Now, this is not like the Philippine Catholics do, where they walk down the street bearing a cross, or even have themselves nailed to a cross, or they march in a parade down the street beating themselves with whips to afflict themselves in sorrow for their guilt. That's not what they're doing. It is a time of denial, of fasting. And um, even Israelites would wear sackcloth. Now, why would they wear sackcloth? Not very comfortable. Okay, it was, it was, it was comfortable. It was the poorest of clothes the poorest of materials, it was the least comfortable of materials. They're denying themselves, they're taking, they're expressing their abject poverty before God. When somebody was in sorrow, when somebody was in grief, in grief of great loss, they would express that by wearing sackcloth and, and putting ashes on their head. So that affliction, it's a time of mourning, it's a time of sorrow, it's a time of loss and of turning, of regret. It's a time of remembering our sin and our guilt before God because this is the one day of the year when expressed guilt, confessed guilt, is going to be removed. So it's very important that guilt is brought to mind and is confessed because it's that confessed guilt that is removed. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day, holy convocation, I read some of that. You shall not do any work on that day, verse 28. See, this is different than the others. Rather than ordinary work, vocational work, you will not do any work on this day. On the Day of Atonement, there's nothing you can do for yourself. 
You better have your things in order on the days prior. Hear the trumpet blast, get the stuff ready. If it's snowing, shovel it the day before, because on the Day of Atonement, you are not doing any work. You're going to afflict it. Don't worry about making, making, making dinner, because you're going to fast anyway, right? So you're going to deny yourself, you're going to be fasting, you're not going to be doing any work. There's no work that you can do for yourself on this Day of Atonement. For whoever is not afflicted on that day shall be cut off from his people. Whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among the people. You shall not do any work. It's he, just really wrapped up in that, isn't it? No work on the Day of Atonement is very, very important. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. High holy day, you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. So this is a day that becomes a special Sabbath day. If it's not on the seventh day of the week, this is also a Sabbath day. Yeah? Does that mean from one evening at twilight until the following evening at the end of twilight? Yes, the Jewish day doesn't go from morning to morning as ours does. Right. We think of the day, and the day officially begins a minute after midnight, right? Right. Or is it a second after midnight? Exactly. <laughs> exactly, sure. There. But anyway, so after midnight starts a new day. Well, in the Jewish calendar, a new day begins at, at sundown. So sundown starts the new day. When the sun goes down on the Sabbath, that's when all work stops. So from twilight to twilight, the whole day, no work. That's what they're talking about. The whole day is a solemn day of no work and of denial <coughs> and of confession and grief and sorrow and repentance. This is a serious day. Uh, the, the, the other days were often party days. This is not a party day. This is not a celebration day. This is a day of grief. A Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day. Okay, evening to evening you shall keep your Sabbath. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, and they were going to move to the Feast of Booths on the 15th day of the seventh month. So that was, that was um, the, 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 the 10th day is the Day of Atonement. After the Day of Atonement, a few days later, comes the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And the first day shall be a holy convocation. Again, you have special Sabbaths. Seven days you'll present fruit offerings to the Lord, and this again is a celebration. It's a party. In fact, you, you go to Brooklyn today. In, at the right time of the year, and you will see booths constructed outside on the sidewalk. People move out of their out of their apartments and walk-ups for the week, and they live out on the sidewalk in this booth, in this temporary shelter. And the booth, or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's also called, is tabernacles. Think of a tent. It'd be a great way to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles would be to live in a tent for the week. Go, go outside your house and live in a tent for the week. You think, wow, what a bummer. How do you go camping? It's fun. The kids love it. Think of it that way. And it's a reminder, again, of the deliverance out of Egypt. When, he says, and, and God, God, God points this out. Very last the verse, down there, verse 43. Is that the last verse of the chapter? Almost. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths or tabernacles or tents. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So there we were, out of the land of Egypt. We were like newlyweds. We didn't have much, but we had each other. 
Isn't that sweet? Some of you can think back to early married days. You didn't have much, but you had each other. Well, that was Israel and God. They're out there in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt. They have each other that God in the Shekinah glory is in their midst. And all of these tents of Israel, when you read about it in Numbers, all of their tents, they're ordered this side, this side, that side, that side. Everybody's got their own place around the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where the glory of God dwells. God was in their midst and they camped together. Now that is family camp. Huh? <laughs> Camping with God. And that's what they're remembering. Tabernacles is a, is a joyous celebratory time, right? Why is it that when the king reigns in Israel, when Messiah the prince reigns in Jerusalem, during that millennial kingdom, the nations are going to come up year by year and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And by golly, they better come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. What are they celebrating? God is again in their midst. Yeah. His rule. Yeah. God, not just His rule, but in person. In the person of His Son, God is in their midst on the throne. The Son reigns. As he says in Psalm 2, I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. The Lord said to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool and you rule and reign as king. So David said, my Lord will one day reign. They're celebrating tabernacles in Zechariah 14 because God is again in their midst. The people have, have, have been reunited again. In Jerusalem, God dwells there. They with Him. And it's a celebration. And to, and to refuse to come is like Jesus tells the parable of those who refuse to come to the wedding feast. Don't deny the king his invitation. The king invites you to come and celebrate his being in your midst. It would be a good thing to come. But you don't want the king in your midst? You don't like the king in your midst? You don't want to celebrate the king in your midst? God will take this personally. This is one of the ways you honor his presence during that kingdom period. But it's, a, it's a, for those who, who, who know the Lord, who believe the Lord, who trust the Lord, can't wait to go. Got my tickets, you know. We're, we're going to be there. Yeah, we've already booked the tabernacle. <laughs> no hotel I guess. <laughs> don't know just how that all works. But, but that's, that's tabernacles. So, let's put, the, let's put it together. Well, let me do this first. Let's go to the, let's go to the book of Zechariah. Now we go to the book of Zechariah. One of the last prophets in the Old Testament. So you find the Gospels, you go back a little bit further. The book of Zechariah. rejects the shepherd, they pay out his wages, 
30 pieces of silver thrown in the potter's field. There's clear parallels to Christ's coming, the rejection of Christ, his crucifixion. And then you get to chapter 12. And there is a, um, let's see, where do I want to jump in here? Well, if we jump in in, chapter, in verse 6, On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They shall devour to the right and to the left of all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. There's a gathering of, of, of the people of Israel back again in Jerusalem, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So there's going to be a threat against them, but God himself is going to go out and, and, and fight for them. But verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of plea for mercy. Pour out on Israel and on Jerusalem, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn as one mourns for an only son, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning, and, the, and on it goes. Each house will mourn, each family will mourn individually. There's this great mourning. Okay? So God's people are again gathered in Jerusalem. I would suggest to you that that's that regathering and preparation of trumpets. They are gathered and God pours out His Spirit again. Remember Pentecost was a, another first fruits feast? The pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost was a first fruit of a greater harvest that was going to come. And that greater harvest certainly continues on through this present age, but will be culminated, culminated when God pours out His Spirit on the descendants of Israel, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A spirit of grace and a plea for mercy, a spirit that causes them to plea for God's mercy. To turn again in the midst of their great trouble, to turn again to their Lord. And it says, they will look on me, God says, on me, on him whom they pierced. Isn't that strange language? That's a putting together of father and son, of God and the son who was pierced. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. <laughs> they will look on me whom they pierced. And they will mourn as one mourns for an only will weep bitterly. Do you get that mourning, that weeping? What feast is going on now? It's the Day of Atonement. This great mourning and weeping and lament that they're, they look on him whom they've pierced. Messiah did come. And we as a people rejected him. And we, as Peter says in Acts 2, we crucified the Prince of Life. Wow, they are going to admit the guilt that Peter is putting upon them as well as all humanity in Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3, which were Pete, that was Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, remember? And now the Spirit comes out upon them. And the day of atonement has its fulfillment when they look on him whom they pierce. And what happens out of that? Chapter 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them 
from sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins that sinners plunge beneath its blood and lose all their guilty stains. A fountain is opened. Idolatry is cut off. And then you get to verse or chapter 14, and there that's where it's described around about verse 16, 17, where the people come up and they keep the Feast of Booze and they keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me put it together in one big calendar picture now. We are in the midst of summer. That doesn't always feel like it with the weather outside, but we're in the midst of summer. Passover has happened. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. He was raised from the dead to be the first fruits of those who sleep. So Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So in light of his new life, because he died for our sin and rose as first fruits, we live a new life of unleavened bread. We live that new life of unleavened bread as God's people, but now as non-Jewish people joined into this redemption... When the two are made one, the two loaves are brought together on equal standing, Jew and Gentile, at the Feast of Pentecost, where God pours out His Spirit and the New Covenant is initiated. The New Covenant is only initiated then. It has not yet been completed. It will be completed when God fulfills it in its fullest sense by pouring out His Spirit upon Israel. Because didn't He promise to make a New Covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. That spirit hasn't been poured out specifically on this wide expanse of unbelieving Jews. And yet it will. Romans chapter 11 says that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. That's the next thing that happens. And that's Zechariah chapter 12 and 13. And then in that, in that, that, that regathering of God's people to that, to that land of Israel again and around Jerusalem where these, where these battles are going to be taking place and then the, the, the son himself is going to step down. You, you have his return there in, 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 in Zechariah chapter 12. When the, when the son returns, Christ comes and, uh, and the, the spirit is, pu- is poured out upon Israel. And uh, they, they look on him whom they pierce, they mourn, they repent. Fountain of cleansing is open, just like in the day of Pentecost, not Pentecost, the day of atonement, when their sins are confessed upon a, um, a, a, a goat, a scapegoat. And that scapegoat is then taken far away into the wilderness, never to be seen again, so our sins are removed from us. And our sins are removed, and then in the Lord's presence, unhindered by sin, they celebrate with the Lord in His presence the Feast of Tabernacles. And when you see the Tabernacles, we are celebrating being accepted into the presence of God. So that's the prophetic calendar. We are in, we're back here in summer. We're looking forward to that trumpet. And relating to Christ's coming, a couple times in Scripture, doesn't isn't there a trumpet? First, First Thessalonians chapter four, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, the book of Revelations. There is this there's this trumpet blast of the archangel, the trump of God, and then the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught together with them in clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So so we're we're here in the midst of summer, in the midst of Harvest. 
harvest, looking down in the fields, which are already white into harvest. So, what are we in the midst of here? Not to live a happy, wonderful, blessed life. God is going to take care of us. No, we are working in harvest. We are giving ourselves to harvest what? In hope that this calendar God started, He's going to complete it, and we're right in the midst of it. Anticipating the future based on what we've already seen fulfilled. We've seen Passover. We've seen first fruits. We have seen unleavened bread. We've tasted of it. We've seen God work in our lives. We have experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit now, we carry out this harvest in hope of a glorious ingathering that's to come. When people we would never even expect it of look on Him whom they pierced, mourn, grieve of their sin, have that sin forgiven. And we look toward that culmination when we will together be in the Lord's presence. That's the calendar. We're in the midst of it. That's an awesome calendar. Our time is gone. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what you are in the midst of. Thank you, Lord, for your work, for your plan. And Lord, you have made us a part of it. Oh God, we, we we are humbled at the thought of it. Lord, we are somewhat overwhelmed thinking that in this grand plan of redemption that you are working, that there's a a place here now for us, that we are in the midst of this harvest. Oh, Lord, we pray then, as you told us to, we pray that you would send the workers into your harvest. Lord, would you send us as your workers into your harvest, confident that you will be complete? confident that we would in some ways see your hand at work and that we'll one day see the real fruit of it. So Lord, we, we give ourselves again to you. We trust you in the midst of this week, Lord, to use us in this harvest for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.